This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. And I'm Soren Rearegard. We're joined, as always, by our third host in absentia, in vitro, Friedrich Pietsche. He wanted to be here today, folks. Uh, he's hard at work on his newest book. That's all about the great flavors, the really pleasant, undefinable flavors you can draw out of different mushrooms. He's, I think, calling it on the genial umamiology of morels. Hopefully that'll be out at your local bookseller soon. Wow, that was really silly, Simon. <laughs> we're back. Uh, you can follow us, <laughs> if you dare, on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Karamazov. We are on Twitter at TheReadersK. You can send us any questions you have at TheReadersKaramazov at gmail.com. We would love uh, to take some time to answer any questions you might have about literature, philosophy, the Brothers Karamazov that we've been reading, any future books we read, uh, life, anything like that. You can send it our way at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. Lastly, don't forget to sign up to become a Patreon supporter. You can sign up at $5 a month. You can sign up at $10 a month. You can sign up at $15 a month if you desire. And that will give you lots of bonus benefits. But even at the $5 level, the lowest level, you'll get access to bonus podcast material, including one we just recorded and released last week, our first movie pod, which we'll be doing occasionally for patrons only, on uh, the beloved children's classic Toy Story. You will not want to miss this. Carl just absolutely destroys this film. It's like a 2015 headline from the internet. He maybe local goes a little lo too far. <laughs> local, local podcaster <laughs> obliterates children's movie. It's wonderful. And you can only access that full episode if you sign up to be a Patreon patron. So do that. Once more, that's patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. We hope you'll join us there. And we hope you'll tell your friends about this pod. We really appreciate the support we've had so far. We'd like to reach even more ears. So if you know somebody who likes literature, who likes philosophy, who likes terrible puns, tell them, spread the word. Carl, we are nearing the end of our first journey. It's been an incredible ride. We are now four and a half episodes into <laughs> The Brothers Karamazov, our first book, and we are done, finally. We're finally at the <laughs> we end. We've reached it. made it to the end. As long as, a, for as long as a Russian winter, we've been marching <laughs> through this book like Napoleon. But we're, we're there at the end. We finally reached the final part, and we're going to talk about it today. We're going to wrap up and then we will move on to other things. Once more, just as always, we're going to do a brief plot summary of what happens in this part of the book. Uh, for those of you following along who haven't read it yet, but are still interested in the ideas that are floating through there, we'll tell you briefly what happens. And then we'll talk about a couple of the key ideas that we think are emerging in this part of the book. So as always, in, in basically every part of the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky is weaving together a couple of different stories. We finally have an acceleration of the main thread of the book, which is about the so-called parricide, the killing of the father, Fyodor, Fyodor Karamazov. And we have the trial of Dmitri, the oldest son, who has been accused of this murder. 
that takes up the biggest chunk of part four. But we also have a couple of other things going on. Primarily, right before the trial, we have a check-in on Ivan Karamazov and what he's been up to and his dealings with Smirjikov, the fourth brother, the unrecognized illegitimate brother. And then before that, even, we have the encounters between Alyosha and the schoolboys that he's been dealing with since part one. They come back, they are all around the bedside of this dying boy. And so we get some interactions there. And then that comes back at the very end of the book in the epilogue. So we'll talk about those things. A lot of words are spilled. Maybe not a whole lot happens. Here's a spoiler alert for a 150-year-old book. The trial happens and Dimitri insists on his innocence throughout the whole thing. It looks like maybe he's going to get off. And then at the very end, they say, no, you're guilty of everything. And the other brothers are convinced of his innocence. They're convinced that Smirnikov did it. Smirnikov has hanged himself for reasons that aren't entirely clear. And so they're planning to help him escape to America with Grushenka, his would-be sort of fiance, not his real fiance, who he's ditched, Katerina, but the new one that he wants to marry. So that's sort of how the book ends. We don't know exactly what's happening, but there's the implication that he's going to escape with Grushenka to America. Everybody else will go on with their lives in Russia. Yeah, and Ivan is in a place who really knows exactly how well he's doing at the end of the book. Maybe he's bound for the madhouse at the end. Yes, he's suffering from this delightful 19th century disease called brain fever. <laughs> they don't name him like they used to, but he's got a brain fever. So yeah, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with him. His, his future is very uncertain. And even Alyosha's future is uncertain. We don't know exactly. He claims he's going to be leaving this town, but we don't know what he's going to next. He's left the monastery. There's not really an implication that he's going to go back. I had said in the maybe first or second episode that I thought Lisa was going to come back very strongly. I think I misremembered that a little bit. She's not as close with him at the end in my reading. No, maybe... she's rejected him. Yeah. yeah she, she, they were and... supposed to be engaged. She's only 15, by the way, but yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, so she's quite young, but they're supposed to be engaged. He, he basically sort of proposes to her under pressure from her. And then she rejects him and says, no, 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 I don't want you. I was just making it all up. So she has, she has something to give Ivan, I think, at the end, right? And then it's left right there, kind of a loose end. Uh, yeah, surprising on this read through how for a supposedly one of the greatest novels of all time, I think it would not it would not pass an editor today. Like so <laughs> many, so many loose ends and plots, the threads that don't come to any sort of fruition in this long somewhat anticlimactic fourth part of the book. He's the, he's the anti-Dickens in that regard, Dostoevsky. Dickens never met a plot that he couldn't wrap up uh, in one way or another. So, But Dostoevsky just leaves us hanging here at the end. A lot of uncertainty, so that's good. Okay, so let's dive in, and we're going we're gonna to talk about a few things here. Carl, I think you wanted to start off talking about Smirnikov. He's really becomes a very important character in this section, and thinking in particular about his relationship with Ivan, the middle brother. Yes. So there's this, there, there's book 10, 11, 12, and the epilogue in this part four. And after book 10, where we meet Kolya, who is sort of the alpha male boy, and he kind of has a wonderful, the dying Ilyusha, who we met before, we pivot to Ivan's story and the real deepening of Ivan's crisis in faith, doubt, skepticism comes in this book 11 when he has not one, not two, but three meetings with Smerdyakov. And in them, Smerdyakov plays a very strange and interesting gambit with Ivan to the point of saying that Ivan having left 
in the middle of this tense moment where there's so much animosity between his father and his brother and Ivan just leaves with you know keeping Smerdikov in charge in some way of what might happen Smerdikov says in fact you leaving gave me the the okay the wink and the nudge to kill your father and having done that you are guilty of committing and maybe even orchestrating this crime and so therefore of the four brothers it's Ivan who's the, who's the the guilty one. He is, you know, the sort of desk murderer of this of this event in some ways. Smirnikov also says that Ivan is the most like his father, which is a very odd claim to make because we've been set up the whole book to think that Dmitri is the one who's like his father because he's very passionate. They fight over the same women. They both are maybe too attached to money, but really, he's Smirnikov accuses Ivan of being essentially kind of controlling and calculating like his father. Yeah, it's an interesting set of accusations to make against Ivan. He also suggests that it's Ivan's fault ultimately that Smirnikov killed Fyodor, not only at the literal level of having left and giving him that permission, but on the philosophical level, it is Ivan's ideas that have brought about in Smirnikov the ability to kill his father. Yes, and that, and that comes most presciently from this rumination on the idea that everything is permitted. This is kind of the seed that sows the deceit for Smerdyakov. Ivan has really pondered that, and in our extra episode on the wonderful and terrible and epic story of the Grand Inquisitor, we get into that a little bit more about the philosophical depths of how everything is permitted. But that seed in Smerdyakov, I mean, he takes it to the next level and where Ivan is perhaps happy or distraught enough to leave the situation, Smerdyakov thinks, well, then I can murder. I mean, if everything is permitted, then murder is one of those things. And so Smerdyakov also takes this idea that everything is permitted and he uses that to teach one of these boys, Ilyusha, that it's okay to put pins in bread and feed them to dogs. And this is what makes Ilyusha so overwrought that he becomes sick and he is now on his deathbed. And so this animosity or malice that he shows towards the youngest characters in the book and the oldest, he claims is derived from something Ivan taught him. And this is part of what makes him guilty. This is part of what he says makes Ivan the guilty one. That's a really fascinating detail, the, the feeding the, the pin and the bread to the dog, because, you know, it's very popular. It's sort of become a popular notion these days that one of the signs of being a psychopath, you see these like lists of signs, you might be a psychopath or whatever online. Um, and one of them is cruelty to animals, basically, and like sort of wanton cruelty to animals. And there's that sort of explanation there, like, oh, like somebody who does that is just a monster, right? There, and there's sort of no reasoning behind what's going on. But we get a slightly different view here. I mean, in some ways you might say, yes, Smirnikov is kind of psychotic or maybe like sociopathic because he doesn't seem to have a, any sort of moral compass. But Really, he does seem to be acting out, if we take him at his word, he's acting out this dizzying freedom that he has acquired from Ivan's philosophy that everything is permitted. Whereas Ivan doesn't really have the courage, and he's in fact accused of being a coward several times here, to live those convictions out, Smirnikov does. 
if everything is permitted, okay, then let's test that out and see. And it makes for a very interesting set of motivations for the murder, right? We have this, really this red herring running through the book of, oh, there's this 3,000 rubles that Fyodor has been killed for. And in reality, Smirnikov, though he has the 3,000 rubles, doesn't seem terribly interested in them. The actual murder is not really about money. It's about something else. And Smirnikov seems to take it very philosophically. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, and I would wonder what like a Russian scholar or somebody would say, because there's a certain sense in which his character is totally motivated by moving to France and becoming a, what is it, a chef, I think, and sort of moving on and moving up in the social order. And similar to Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, right? There's a sense in which his murder is a means to an end to get somewhere, to get something, to get a new social standing. But then sort of right in the middle of this second or third visit out, and now Smerdyakov is just ready to go where all human action can go if everything is permitted in a completely amoral landscape for no reason necessarily whatsoever. So there's a divide in motivation, I think, that kind of happens at one point. I think if I were to answer that back, I would say just this, that I think that there is a point of connection between those two motivations, which is that Smerdyakov is a character who is very driven by resentment. And part of the reason he wants to go kind of escape and run away is so that he can sort of rise above his social station, which he hates. He can't, he can never stand hearing about how his mother was stinking Lizaveta. And so he's driven by that resentment against really his father and, and his brothers because they have money and he doesn't, and he's, he'll never have that because he's not the legitimate son. He's driven by resentment in that sense to sort of show them wrong. The way he takes it with Ivan is he seems to be driven by a certain resentment against Ivan, at least in sort of explaining his crime here. He wants to show Ivan that he's smart enough, he's good enough, he can do these things too. Yeah, there's a sadness to his character when we get some of these moments. And in other parts before, when he's playing the guitar and he's playing his songs, he answers everyone with overemphasizing the word sir, as we get in our English translation. Clearly, he is of the lower class and he has felt it his entire life. And I totally agree with your point that you just made. Um, the resentment does sort of overwhelm him in each meeting with Ivan. He sort of is like serial killers wanting to give up that he has done it. And it's certainly my opinion that completely without a doubt understood that he was the killer. Yes, we're, I think we're agreed on that point. There is apparently some, some critical difference on this, whether or not maybe Dimitri actually did commit the crime. But I think we're both in agreement that no, it, it's pretty clear that Smirnikov did it. Yeah. And, and he takes out the money, right? And he shows him and he explains to Ivan how he did it. And he does this chiefly to show how his resentment is a kind of revenge on the brothers, the legitimate brothers. And he says, doesn't a man get tired of it? Here we are, just the two of us. So what's the use of putting on such an act, trying to fool each other? Or do you still want to shift it all onto me, right to my face? You killed him. You are the main killer. And I was just your minion, your faithful servant, Licharda and I performed the deed according to your word. And so that's how he gets the kind of servant's revenge there, right? Where if he's just a servant, well then, he can't be the one who's fully guilty, can he? He had to have been doing something in the charge of someone who was legitimate. And that full guilt then, he thinks, falls on Ivan. So it's kind of a bit treacherous, but quite intelligent argument that he makes to kind of get his final revenge. And then he ends up hanging himself having sort of 
gotten what he wanted, it seems like. Can we talk a little bit about Ivan and his weird dreamscape? Because of these interactions with Smirnikov, he starts to emerge as a very troubled figure here. And that kind of culminates, he's, he's been getting this brain fever, and it culminates the night before the trial, he has this visitation in a dream by a devil, which apparently he's had a couple of times before this, but we get this, this encounter with him. And it's a, a very fascinating encounter. The devil comes to him not as a terrifying demon, but as a sort of shabbily dressed. It's like he's like a lower level bureaucrat in the government or something mm-hmm. like this, which is a delightful theme. I think that other writers have picked up on subsequently the, the sort of shabbiness of evil that comes to him. And he, he's almost a little insulted by this, right? He wants the power there and everything, but instead he gets this very shabby figure. And the devil makes this very weird series of arguments, essentially saying, hey, I'm just a victim here. I'm a scapegoat here for what's going on. I have to keep doing these bad things that I don't want to do because otherwise nothing would ever happen, right? They need me to keep the plot going, basically. And he's like, I really want to be a good guy. I love (laughs) kindness. I love love. But somebody has to be here to keep making things happen. It's a really weird interaction um, that he has with this devil. I mean, what do you make of that? Is this just a dream that's emerging from Ivan's subconscious or is there something more to it? I think part of what sets this scene too, um, we should mention before we get to that, is that when Smirnikov shows Ivan the money, he puts it and hides it under this book. Um, It's the book of Isaac the Syrian, which takes us back to sort of the philosophy of Zoshima, proclaiming oneself guilty before all. So there's definitely multiple layers of meaning going on there about what is the core philosophy that Dostoevsky's trying to get out in this book and how he's literally waging war against that Joshiman idea with being guilty and like ironizing it by making literally placed under the book as if he's saying, you know, here it is in as stark of a contrast as I can make it symbolically, the money or the book, the proof of the murder or the proof of the thing that's going to save a portrait of humanity from this patricide. Those two things are right on the table. And Ivan's looking at that, and that's part of what spurs him to this sort of fantasy about the devil. And that sort of sets the stage for how to think about this devil and who he is. So so we got to keep that in mind. And so I think this ties us to the fact that the the devil, who is perhaps also simply... Ivan's subconscious, right? Dostoevsky walks right on that line throughout this part. <laughs> Taunts Ivan and says, you know, you love money um, and respect and pride and peace and prosperity. And so part of that money on the table is also part of this, this devilish taunt. The 3000 represents not just for Dmitri a sort of new future and a sort of new start in life, but a similar thing a sense of prestige for Ivan as well. This kind of goes back to to the idea that I mentioned before, which is that Ivan seems beset by a certain cowardice in terms of his own convictions. And he's not, and this is not necessarily a problem, but he's not able to live out those convictions as a revolutionary, right? And so he has essentially to try to live them out as a respectable bourgeois citizen is his plan, right? He, he sort of has these radical revolutionary ideas in some ways, but he doesn't want to actually bring them about because he values 
respectability too much. And in that way, he has this sort of interesting parallel with the, the more minor character, Rakuten, who we see a couple more times over the course of this part, whose journey I just love because he's he's sort of the comic version of Ivan mm-hmm. in some ways. And Rakuten is very similar. He He's, you know, a seminarian, but he's a seminarian careerist, right? And he doesn't actually believe in God and he doesn't, he's not interested in that stuff. He wants to get what he can out of life. And he's written all these art. He's, he's studying Dimitri as a case to write about him, right? To kind of become famous for his critiques. And then um, he's a witness at the trial and he, he sort of puffs himself up and speaks really well and everybody's in awe of him. And then it comes out first that he had taken money from Grushenka for bringing Alyosha to Grushenka, which is something we talked about in part two. And he's very embarrassed about that. But then it gets even worse because Grushenka, who is very lowborn, reveals to everybody in the whole court that actually Rakuten is her cousin and he can't, he cannot recover from this. And so he's sort of this comic uh, reflection of Ivan, this idea that he has these radical ideas about how to change society, but really what he wants is to get ahead to a comfortable spot in life. And Ivan's plagued by that same thing. Is he actually going to go through with the courage of his convictions, which would be terrible in its own right, Dostoevsky seems to suggest, because Smirnikov does have that courage to go through with it. Or is he just going to sort of float through life in the middle, claiming to have these radical ideas, but then living very contentedly this sort of middle class life, which is an interesting challenge maybe to some of us who work in academia, Ivan being the (laughs) the most academic uh, of the three brothers. There is a sort of this temptation to have very radical ideas. And then at the end of the day, what you're really interested in is sort of living a comfortable existence and just sort of getting by with prestige and things like that. What I think are you trying to say, Soren? What are you trying to say? <laughs> I've there? never, I've never claimed to have a, have a radical idea in my life, so I'm, I'm okay. But <laughs> I like how this devil also harkens back to the the non-Euclidean versus the Euclidean, and Ivan can only go so far as the Euclidean. That's delightful. That's a deep cut for uh, patrons who listen to our Grand Inquisitor podcast. Yeah. And he says at one point, I'm only an X in an indeterminate equation. And he just simply cannot decide there is a God, there isn't a God. So much depends on that question. And he can't make it from his Euclidean standpoint. He simply cannot get all the way there. And I think part of what this psychomachia kind of represents for Dostoevsky is the part of the tripartite Karamazovian soul that is pure reason. Not that he's a Kantian or anything, but he gets to a point where what if you are being as precise and as pure as you can about rationality and sort of in your crucible of reason, taking out every small filament that is, you know, unrefined, how far can you get? And it seems like doubt cannot be overcome. It's kind of the the parable of Ivan here. And so if everything is permitted, becomes the question that you have to answer the doubts end up drowning the truths and you're left with a sort of moral weakness in the face of something like Smerdyakov. Let's talk a little bit about the trial. Look, the trial is not the most interesting part of the book. It takes up, <laughs> it takes up a, a big amount of space, but there's a lot of lawyers talking back and forth to each other. Yes. Uh, and they kind of lead you through all of the evidence all over again, somewhat summative. But there was one thing that stuck out to me on this reading that I thought was really interesting. I think that to some extent Dostoevsky is playing with the reader here a little bit. And here's what I mean. There's a theme that comes up throughout the trial of a sort of stated contrast between the machinations of a legal court and what it can and can't do versus what a novel can and can't do. 
because the defense lawyer, who's a very, he's kind of a hotshot lawyer from St. Petersburg, comes into town and in his speech defending Dmitry, he says that everything that the prosecution has said up to this point could easily be from a novel, right? It's just the psychologized nonsense. And he's going to tell you a different story. And then the prosecution comes back to him and says, well, you're just telling a novel too. And so there's this really interesting question running through the trial of how do we get at what the truth of a moral situation like this really is? And the reason that I say that I think Dostoevsky is playing with the reader a little bit is because he's showing us that all of the forensic or the physical or the legal evidence in the case points toward Dimitri's guilt. You have all this physical evidence pinning the crime on Dimitri. The only other possible perpetrator, Smirnikov, has now hanged himself, so he can't really give us a definitive answer. He's confessed to Ivan, but Ivan has a brain fever now, so nobody wants to believe him. And so all of these other things that happen, all of the, essentially the points in Dimitri's favor, don't rest on physical or forensic evidence. They rest on character knowledge. Alyosha says, I knew he couldn't possibly be the, mur the murderer, right? And even some of the sort of the historical uh, evidence that's brought in in his favor is this really interesting character evidence. So one of the doctors who's called in to make a ruling on whether Dimitri is or isn't mad says, oh, I remember, he's an old man. He said, I remember when Dimitri was a young boy and I gave him a pound of nuts because nobody had ever given him a pound of nuts before. It's like a real luxury for him because his dad didn't treat him well. And many years later, he came back to me and he thanked me for the pound of nuts again, right? So it's sort of this evidence that Dimitri is a noble soul. This is the evidence that we're given in favor of Dmitri. But the way that Dostoevsky has told the story, we're, I think, very clearly supposed to realize that Dmitri is not and could not be a murderer. I think mm -hmm. he's showing us the, at the end of the day, the limitations of the legal method versus the novelistic method. And we get some, you know, from, from the lawyers, we get some very dismissive references to, to novels, especially um, The Mysteries of Udolpho, which is a lot of people consider to be the very first gothic novel, which is an interesting choice. But the points that, be, that are being made there is like, oh, the novel is so fantastic, right? So these flights of fancy. But obviously, Dostoevsky is giving us a novel here. And so he is at least somewhat on the side of the novel. I think he recognizes the limitations of the novel as a means of getting at truth. But I think he thinks that there's something important that a novel can do and give to us that merely legal evidence can't give. Oh, I think that's exactly the case. There's this wonderful line too, page 652, tomorrow the cross, but not the gallows. And there's another distinction there that I think is supposed to ring really true that gets to what you're trying to suggest in a way too, right? Which is that religious literature is still literature, right? Sacred literature is still literature. So Dostoevsky clearly on seeing himself out of that tradition, right? The tradition of reading novels carefully comes out of the tradition of reading sacred texts carefully. So up from that sense of reading stories and parables carefully in order to get the evidence of conscience or consciousness is something he's contrasting strongly with the evidence that can be drawn forth completely outside of one person's consciousness. Should we move on a little bit and talk about Alyosha and the boys? Yeah, so the trial goes on and on and on. It does sum up sort of everything that we've summed up in the in the previous episodes and the, the philosophical viewpoints are really overdone. And then how long do they deliberate the jury? Uh, it's an hour. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, like, not, very not, not very long. The whole trial uh, takes place in one day, which is like a, a minor miracle. 
there's another weird thing too, like on the narrative level where our narrator is supposedly just a man about town, a man in the town, but then we get all kinds of deeply personal (laughs) fly on the wall takes of things that happen. Right. So it's a bit like Moby Dick, I think kind of has this problem too, where the narrative bleeds a bit from first to third person throughout the length of the book. And I think at at some point the author kind of was backed into a corner trying to figure out, well, how am I going to get a person to be there for this epically intimate conversation? (laughs) And the answer is, well, we just uh, allow for those foibles in some of these <laughs> 19th century novels, right? He, yes. needed a, he needed a continuity editor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm saying these would not be publishable today. They'd throw it out. But yeah, no, we get through all the, the prosecutor's speech and, and then the verdict of guilt is rendered on Dimitri. And we move to the epilogue where we're back with Alyosha and the boys from the beginning of this part four, where we're sort of left with it looking extremely dire for... Ilyusha. And so we know that Ily- Ilyushchenko did not make it. I'm really fascinated by this whole, the whole thread of this story of Alyosha and the boys for several reasons. One is that it helps us to think a little bit more about one of the maybe more muted threads in the book, which is this idea of, of what is an education and what does it mean to really to develop a life view and then live it out. And so we have these pedagogical relationships throughout the book, some good, some bad. We have, obviously, we talked just just now about Ivan and Smirnikov, which is a bad pedagogical relationship, right? <laughs> that ends in murder. And Alyosha has been the recipient of a pedagogical relationship at the beginning of the book with Father Zhojima. And here he seems to be trying to pass those things along to a new generation. Alyosha is not super old. He's about 20 or so, but these are boys who are at the oldest, sort of 14, and then down, on down to about 11 or 12, at this whole gang of boys. And Alyosha takes them under his wing and is, is sort of mentoring them and, and teaching them really how to love in an active way as their schoolmate, Ilyusha, who had been very cruel to many of them, is dying. And in particular, Alyosha has a few interactions with Kolya, the the leader of the boys, as you described him before, sort of an alpha male. And Kolya is the oldest of these boys, and he wants to be seen as an adult. He's got this really wonderful teenage problem. He wants to be considered to be an adult, especially by Alyosha. He's sort of the smartest guy in the room. He's precocious, and he quotes Voltaire, right? Um, Yes. And it's clearly hinted that he is the proto-atheist waiting to be the next Ivan. Yes, um, absolutely. He, he's also, him up. Yes. he's a smart ass. He corrects his teachers, right? <laughs> he's the kid who sit, sat in the back of the room and is like, maybe Hitler was just leading his own life. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the, the asshole teenage atheist. But no, but he's, he really isn't. I mean, in, in the end, he's not because he's, he's very redeemable, but he's headed down that path of being that and way. He, and he had to prove to himself and to the other boys that he was the bravest boy, right? So he has to be the alpha in all things, uh, the smartest, the bravest, the most athletic. And he sort of held Ilyusha in a bit of fear and trepidation and anxiety by not agreeing to be his friend anymore based on this thing that he's done. And he sort of carries the emotional center for the boys. Yeah. And what's great is by the end, he's transformed his need to be the alpha has been guided, it's really suggested by, in large part by Alyosha, towards 
the desire to be the foremost among them as a servant, right? Which is very sort of, you know, the, the lesson from the gospels where Jesus says, right? The son of man came not to be served, but to serve, right? Whoever wants to be greatest among you should serve the others, right? And so he's been guided towards that sense of service so that by the end, Kolya is the one kind of taking charge of the situations because Ilyusha's family is just a mess, right? His dad is a is driven to drink by grief. His mom is somehow not quite there mentally. And so she's very childlike. And then his sister is is also an invalid. And so there's not really adults in the room taking care of the situation of Ilyusha dying and having a funeral, right? And so Kolya is one of the, you know, the engines behind making sure that this happens properly. And he's there also just sort of taking care of the other boys and comforting them. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting how this sort of monastic, almost Taoist, very yin way that Alyosha goes about changing his mind. And it kind of links up with how he tries to change the minds of a few characters in the book and is often successful doing it simply by mirroring to them how they've acted. And so, Sorn, you brought up teaching. And I think Alyosha is supposed to be the sort of successful teacher in the book. And that's and what sort of saves Ivan from this reverie where he's thinking of the devil being himself is Alyosha just shows up and he says, you are like a little dove who scared off the devil. <laughs> and, and during the Grand Inquisitor episode, he says, you know, like in response to the parable, he simply kisses him as the Inquisitor yeah. got the kiss from Jesus. And yeah. with Kolya, he says, Kolya tells this story about how he sort of manipulated other boys and he will break with them forever, he says, if they don't do as he says. After waiting a while, Alyosha says the same thing to Kolya. If you don't help me right here, if you don't do as I say to help Alyosha, I will break with you forever. And <laughs> and Kolya is sort of like up in arms, right? And he does he does a similar thing with Grushenka too, right? And for each of these characters, they sort of learn something in that moment that if only they can imagine how they treat others as how they might learn from someone who is being as harsh as they are to others, to everyone else. Alyosha just provides that sort of simple mirror for them. It's, hmm. it's a really interesting sort of very gentle way of trying to change how people think. And it's surprising that Dostoevsky sort of sides with that, given the like the roughness and the harshness of some of the characters who try to change other people, right? <laughs> you think yes. of Dimitri and the whisk broom, right? And throwing down the gauntlet and having a duel, you know, having it out right here, that doesn't work. And, you know, yeah. Dostoevsky isn't really known for this kind of take things easily and do things gently approach. Yeah. But that is kind of the, the, the core message that you get from Alyosha, the teacher here. I like that point about the calling Ivan a dove because he later at the very end calls the boys doves as well. And right. so exactly. there's that interesting image and, and sort of thinking biblically about it, right? The dove as the image of peace, as the image of sort of a calmness of the presence of the Holy Spirit, all those things sort of wrapped up there. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and there's even the little line about bread needing to be put down so the sparrows will come. And that's another biblical reference as well, right? That God watches over even the sort of the falling of a sparrow. So these extremely small, seemingly unimportant acts have some sort of providential guidance to them and there's there's some sense also in which that act because this is what Ilyusha requests is that they bring bread to the funeral and sprinkle it over his grave so that the sparrows will come and there that is a sort of reparation for 
when he had tried, under Smirnikov's advice, tried to feed bread to this dog with a pin in it. And so he's bringing that restoration via that act. Right. And that was the boy's dying wish. And so that's, that's in a way how, as you say, yeah, there's kind of a redemption there. And that's another one of the subtle ways in which I think the ending really does pay off on the big question or debt that the book sets out with, which is how can we rethink terrestrial life as a paradise? Hmm. It seems as though, even though we are at a, an innocent young boy's funeral, so it's certainly not a on its face paradisical event or pleasant event, there's still a sort of terrestrial redemption of it in hmm. how Alyosha has saved these other boys from a path that ends where Ivan ends or where Dimitri ends. Can I say one more thing about this this ending speech? It struck me reading through this time, there are a lot of references in the book to Hamlet and also uh, there's a one to Othello that we talked about in a previous session. But this ending speech this time brought to mind a different Shakespeare play to me, which is Henry V and the very famous St. Crispian's Day speech that Henry V gives right before the, the big battle in the, in the play. And he says to all of his men, look, you're going into this battle with me. Years from now, you will remember this as the most important day of your life. And people who weren't here battling will feel ashamed of themselves because they weren't here with us. And this, and of course, the very famous phrase is, we happy few, we band of brothers. And it struck, struck me this time reading through that this speech that Alyosha gives to the boys, they've, they've gone to this, they're not at the graveside of Alyosha, but they're at this stone that had played a very important part in his life and where his father had wanted him to be buried. So they're remembering Ilyusha in this moment and Alyosha gives them a speech and what he says to them is, keep this memory and come back to it in your life. You're young now, but never forget this moment when we were here together and let it keep you from evil. In the future, when you think about doing something evil, think about this memory. And then you might think, oh, that was a stupid memory. I'm gonna laugh at it, but then hold yourself back from it and let this be a sort of signal event in your life. And I can't help but feel like Dostoevsky is very subtly parodying that speech, the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V, because in that play, this is a super important world historical battle between the French and the English. And Henry is inspiring his men to go forth and do great things. And here we have this very quiet, gentle moment. They're remembering their dead friend. They're all there together, maybe for the last time gathered together. And it's an event that's not gonna have significance for people outside of that circle. But it's the funeral of a poor boy. It's a funeral of a poor boy, but there's still this sense of the ability to transform the world through that act of memory. It also strikes me that that then connects to the fact that Jojima has been guided his whole life in part by a memory of his brother as he's dying and had then lived his whole life forward through that memory. And there seems to be a sense in which Alyosha is trying to give something similar to these boys, a memory which will feed them and lead them forward in life so that they can live a life based on love and giving to others. It's such an amazing ending on a lot of levels. Just thinking, zooming all the way out and asking sort of where do these characters that we started with have gone and this metaphorical register of what it is to be a Karamazov is to do something to the hilt all the way, to not be able to do anything halfway. I think Vonnegut famously in Slaughterhouse-Five says, you know, you can learn everything about life from reading 
the brothers Karamazov. Right? <laughs> and part of what this, the end of this novel says is, you know, how is it that we can live life and imagine ourselves to be in a paradise? How can we be happy? And the short answer is sort of life is good when you do good, when you enact good in the world. And we get these three really stark characters. You know, there's there's sort of four ways of going about this. One is half-baked or half-assed approach to life. And Dostoevsky's never interested in that, right? <laughs> so that's why we have the three so, brothers. Yeah. Dimitri is sensualism without ceasing. And that ends with an exile. You eventually lose whatever home you have because you've sort of eaten it all up. There's no way to keep or maintain a home if you are a sensualist without ceasing. And then Ivan represents thinking without ceasing. Again, that ends him in brain fever. <laughs> to think without ceasing is a bit too unembodied and too overly rationalizing. And you won't end up happy and you won't end up in paradise. And then if you're Alyosha, you love without ceasing. Mm -hmm. And even though that means you have to clean up in a world where children die, the innocent go to prison, and fathers are killed by their sons, you still are really the only one able to take that onion and get out of hell and find a <laughs> paradise. I think that that is sort of earned in the ending here, and Alyosha's maxim and philosophy of loving without ceasing it pays off if you can accept those harsh truths and that's a good note i think to end on let that be true maybe of all of us to live that forward well it's been a it's been a heck of a ride and i've loved doing it with you carl this has been great do you want to say just one word really quickly about where we're going next i'm, I'm gonna let you do this since this is sort of your pick although i'm very excited to read along too for the next book we'll be doing Sure. Yeah. Since we took on a tome here, I think it's for everyone's best interest, the, our listeners and <laughs> Soren and my own, to pick a few shorter works in the future. And hopefully this will encourage people to read along with us, pick up a book that we think really hits home on philosophy and literature and what they can do together. So next we are going to read Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. I think a very seminal, very interesting short novel in the tradition of the short philosophical novel. This yes. Brothers K is in the tradition <laughs> of the long philosophical novel, which yes. we'll get back to at a later date. <laughs> yes. We could all use some shortness in our life right now. That's great. Yeah. So, so if you're listening to this now and you want to order a copy of uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. So you're ready to, to read along and listen. That would be great. We'll be back with that in a couple of weeks. And then after that, I think we will be doing another short, wonderful philosophical novel by the British philosopher and novelist, a very rare combination, Iris Murdoch, called A Severed Head, which is a really lovely, short, little nasty <laughs> novel of hers. So if you want to order those, that as well, and get extra on top of things, that would be great. But next time we will be talking about Giovanni's Room, Carl's going to have a lot of really interesting things to say about that. I will be following <laughs> along as best, I can. but I'm very excited about that for sure. So one last time I'll say, uh, just remember to spread the word, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash the readers Karamazov, 
Three on cheers tour. for the readers, Karamazov. Three cheers. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> That's a deep cut for those of you who got all the way to the end, <laughs> to the end of the Brothers Karamazov. And follow us on Twitter at the Readers K. Email us, thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. And of course, sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash thereaderskaramazov. Until next time, why don't you play us out, cat keyboard? <laughs> Oh, those Russians. <laughs>